Good morning, welcome to Lake Road Chapel. We are going to read, at the beginning of our service, we're going to read from Psalm 45. That's Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendour and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and alloys and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. And may God bless that reading of his holy and inerrant word. I also wanted to just read a couple of verses from Habakkuk. Uh, it's a wonderful book in the prophets, Habakkuk. And chapter 2, just a word of comfort really. Habakkuk 2. I'll read from verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. And there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What a word of reassurance and comfort as we see the chaos, the noise, the, in, you know, the incessant chatter on social media. Behold, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in heaven. The Lord rules and reigns. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Who are we? But the Lord is on his throne. May that be a comfort to you this Lord's day and this week, that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. If you have your Bibles open anyway, perhaps you can turn with me to the book of the Gospel of John. 
the Gospel of John. We'll be reading from chapter 6 this morning. That's John's Gospel and chapter 6. I'm taking a short break from the first letter to Peter today. Next Sunday, that's the last Sunday in June, we have the privilege of Tom Brand, who's the ministry director of the EFCC preaching. He is uh, willing to prepare an online sermon for us. And as the next section in 1 Peter is, gets very practical and it flows together, I decided to pause so we can pick that up in July. I hope that the first Lord's Day in July will be in church, physically, whatever that means and whatever that looks like. We are committed to keep on streaming video sermons. We will explore doing it live, but whether live or pre-recorded, that needs to be finalised. We're committed to the principle of the ministry of God's word being streamed from here. And that means that people can come uh, or not come, depending on their level of comfort at coming out and coming to the church building. We do not want to impute anything to anyone who does not yet feel comfortable to come. We, we will not be singing. It is still a season of lament, of deprivation, a time when, of devotion to the Lord Jesus, a time to call out to the Lord for mercy. So while we look forward to being together in the church building, it will be very different to what we're used to. And for that, we, we, you know, we need to wait upon the Lord. So let us wait on the Lord to cry out to him for mercy and to cry out to him for his salvation. John 6. That's why we're in John 6, we'll come back to 1 Peter in July. Let me give you a bit of context. In the first 15 verses of John 6, we see the familiar account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then in our passage, the disciples and the Lord Jesus make their way across the sea to Capernaum. And the passage that follows from verse 22 and onwards Jesus is speaking to the crowds who have now caught up with him, explaining the significance of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the, the miracle that he's just performed, and identifying himself as the bread of life, the giver, the one who gives life to all who feast on him by faith. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we pray for the fresh ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would give us ears to hear what he says to his church from this portion of his holy and inerrant word on this Lord's Day morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So John chapter 6 and verse 16, it's entitled Jesus Walks on Water. So that's John 6 and verse 16. We'll read to verse 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boats, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. 
And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy and inerrant words. And may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. This is a familiar tale with a particular point. John's account, knew the story here is recorded in Matthew and Mark. And John's account is very characteristic. It's characteristic, if you like, it's known for the brief, terse, direct reporting. Matthew and Mark give us many more details. Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6. Matthew and Mark, for example, both tell us that it was at Jesus' command that the disciples left him behind and they go ahead of him on the boat that night. Jesus went to the hills, presumably to spend time in prayer. Matthew focuses on the reactions and the experience of the disciples, particularly upon Peter. If you remember, as Jesus comes walking towards them in the boat, Peter wants to get out of the boat and walk towards him. It doesn't go so well for Peter. And Matthew wants to highlight some of the issues and the facts around the disciples' reactions and so on. John's retelling of the story is kind of fairly bare bones. It's stripped down, it's quite terse, it's quite direct. His concern is not to highlight the experience of the disciples per se, but to focus on the Lord Jesus, to focus our attention on him. The story builds towards the climatic statement of verse 20, where Jesus identifies himself to the disciples in the boat. And our our eyes, brothers and sisters, are meant to linger on Jesus, to wrestle with who he is and all that should mean for us. But it's tempting, it's tempting for a preacher to jump out of John back to Matthew and Mark to help us for some extra detail. And that's wonderful, but it also can miss part of the point. And that's where I want to direct my thoughts for a few moments this morning. John tells the story the way he does for a reason. And we want to attend to the way that John's account has been preserved for us in these five terse, direct verses. So taken on its own terms, verses 16 to 21 teach us two truths about Jesus. First of all, in verses 16 to 19, we are shown Jesus the reason to fear. That's the first point, the first thing to notice. Jesus, the reason to fear. And in verses 20 to 21, here we see Jesus, the end of fear. Jesus, the end of fear. So Jesus, the reason to fear, and Jesus, the end of fear. So firstly, let us notice Jesus, the reason to fear. That's verses 16 to 19. Jesus, the reason to fear. John says that the disciples leave Jesus at the shore and probably later, late in the afternoon they set sail across the Sea of Galilee to go to Capernaum. 
and darkness has fallen and a storm soon overtakes the craft, the small boat. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level and the wind will sweep over the mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee and through the ravines and they whip up violent squalls across the lake, which is devastating small craft on the water. And even today, when the winds whip up the storms on the Sea of Galilee, you know, motorboats are required to remain at dock because it's dangerous for them to venture out on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a violent squall of wind. It's one of those storms that engulfs the disciples in their boat that night. And we're told that fear grips them. Fear. But notice carefully what causes their anxiety. What causes their fear. It isn't fear generated by the storm. They are seasoned fishermen. They know the waters well. They know when a storm is dangerous and when it threatens their boats and when it does not. And it wasn't the storm that made them tremble that night. It would have made me tremble, but I doubt it would have meant not for these men. These men knew what they were doing on the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, on that evening, and yet they were afraid. What made them tremble? It wasn't the storm, it was Jesus. A year after 9-11 in New York, an art student called Clinton Boisevert, you can find it on Google, produced a very provocative piece of work. He was an art student. He deliberately did an art project, which is about 36 big boxes in the heavily trafficked Union Square subway station underground station during the morning rush hour of New York. And it, on each of these boxes, it, they, were, they were spray painted black, I think, they had the word fear written on them. At first, no one particularly paid much attention in the hustle and bustle of the underground station, people rushing to work. It was New York, one of the busiest cities in the world. Then the police were called. Then, then the bomb squad came. Then the trains were stopped. Then the underground station was closed. And anxious commuters poured out onto the street. They were worried. They were very inconvenienced. Worry gave place to fear, fear to anger, and so on. Bomb disposal robots then were sent in. And they discovered, lo and behold, that these were empty boxes. The art student, I'm sure you'll be glad to know, was charged with reckless endangerment and public disorder offences. I'm sure you'll be glad to hear that. But the boxes, like many of our fears, were empty. The irony that John's story highlights for us is that when we run, we, we, you know, we oh so often run scared from fear, from boxes that pose no threat at all because they're empty. But we never tremble. 
in the presence of King Jesus. Look at the story. It is dark. The sea is tough, rough. The storm is raging. The boat is in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the widest part of the lake. And then in the darkness, Jesus comes walking on the sea. And the word for walking just highlights the effortlessness with which Jesus comes to them. He was, we might say, strolling over the waves, unperturbed, totally at ease. It was uncanny and totally beyond the experience and expertise of the fearful disciples. Boats they knew. The Sea of Galilee, they knew. Storms, they knew. The winds, they knew. The waves, they knew. But Jesus, walking on the water, coming to them in a manner for which they simply had no categories. Back in verse 15, after the feeding of the 5,000, we learn that the crowds want to take Jesus by force and make him king. And in verse 26, When Jesus then interacts with the crowd, when they finally catch up with the Lord and his disciples, Jesus puts his finger on their motives. He says, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they want Jesus so they can use him to their advantage. This is a Jesus who will give them things, who will give them stuff. A useful Jesus who supplies needs and offers quick fixes to life's dilemmas. But in that boat, on that night, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples in an altogether different light. He shows himself to be untamable and terrifying. He is no one's puppet. He's not subject to the whim and the appetite of the crowd. This is the Lord Jesus of whom Psalm 77 speaks. Psalm 77 reflects on the Exodus story. And yet here, it also seems to be similar to this moment as Jesus comes walking through the storm to his disciples. Psalm 77 verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwinds. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is Jesus to make us tremble. The God-man who rules the elements. The God-man who rides on the storm and walks on the water. He is the Lord. Not a Jesus whose only role is to fuel our comfort, but a Jesus who commands our submission and awe. Do you have room in your Christianity for Jesus, a Jesus like that? The disciples, and I think 
unintentionally had the balance right that night on the boat. It wasn't the storm that they were afraid of, but Jesus had made them tremble. Something is wrong, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves quaking at empty fear. Those empty boxes at every turn in life's road. And Jesus never makes us tremble. There are things in the last months that have made us all fearful. Has Jesus made you tremble? We have gotten things out of proportion. The elements make us fear. The virus makes us fear. The storm makes us fear. Finances make us fear. Tomorrow makes us fear. Going to school makes us fear. Going to the shops makes us fear. But have we forgotten that we live in the grip of the Lord to whom the elements answer? The one who commands the storm. The one who governs tomorrow. Jesus, the grounds of fear, a reason to fear, to tremble before him, the Lord. Secondly, Jesus is the end of fear. If you look at verses 20 and 21, if coming to them, to the disciples, to the fearful disciples through the storm gave them good reason to tremble, his words to them as he climbs out of the boat shows us Jesus, the end of fear. I love this. They are quaking as he comes to them. With the winds and the rain swirling around them, the vortex of the storm parts as Jesus comes through the darkness, walking on the water, and the waves flatten themselves to make a highway for his feet. And they are dumbfounded. They have no words. And then the Lord Jesus speaks. It is I do not be afraid. What wonderful words, my dear friend, my dear hearer. It is I do not be afraid. Words of reassurance and comfort and tenderness and understanding. And immediately they have the desired effect. Fear is gone and in its place comes gladness. They were glad. The storm becomes calm. They are swiftly able to arrive at a safe haven. And John, in his retelling of this story, has been building up to this moment. More is going on merely in verse 20 than a self-identification by Jesus. This is the climax of the story and John wants us to see a depth in the, to those words that the disciples almost certainly did not themselves grasp until much later. And here again, I think the context helps us see part of John's point. When the Lord Jesus reaches Capernaum the next day, he teaches the crowds the real significance of the miracle of feeding the 5,000. In verse 31, if you could read with me, it says, My, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven 
and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And then he adds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not, do not believe. So the context of understanding is the Exodus story and God's delivering his people from slavery in Egypt and Moses leading them, God's, God using Moses to lead them through the wilderness, providing for them and bringing them safely to the promised land. And that means that we should be alert for similar things in verses 16 to 21 as well. So there is perhaps an echo, isn't there, of the crossing of the Red Sea when Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee. It seems to be echoed in Psalm 77, that wonderful psalm I read it a few minutes ago. The Lord's way through the sea, his footprints being lost and unseen. And when you read the climatic statement of verse 20 in light of Exodus, I think John's point becomes clear. As he arrives at the boat, Jesus says to the disciples, the fearful disciples, it is I. Which in Greek is the simple declaration, ego imai, I am, I am. And as you read through John's gospel, and I love John's gospel, again and again these words appear on the lips of our Lord, with profound significance. They are the Greek translation of the divine name. You know Exodus 3, when Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? What do I say? Who, you know, what do I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh. I am is the divine name. It is the name of the Lord. On that occasion, Moses was overcome by fear. He hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And later on, when Israel met with God at the wilderness, in Mount Sinai, the Lord displays his glory and proclaims his name, the Lord I am. And the mountains tremble and the people are terrified in the presence of the great I am. When Isaiah saw the Lord in his temple, Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Throughout the history of God's dealing with his people, the presence of the great I am rightly strikes fear into the hearts of all who repent. Unmediated glory, unmediated holiness, unmediated majesty, when it meets human finitude and sin, puts us in the dust. And here in John 6, Jesus walks on the water. He comes through the storm. The storm parts, Jesus comes as the great I am. The prophet Nahum Nahum 1, verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will in no 
by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Look what, look what happens. His presence doesn't put them in the dust of despair, as it did the disciples, as it did the prophet Isaiah, or as it did the children of Israel in the wilderness, filling them with terror at Sinai. No, no. Jesus says to the disciples, it is I, do not be afraid. That is why Jesus came, my friend. So that sinners like you and I might meet God in him. And that the terror of unmediated glory might be replaced with the comfort and the gladness of his delivering, saving grace and mercy. There is no one beyond redemption, my friends. Jesus has come. And in Jesus God comes to us, not in stunning displays of power, not shaking the mountains and blocking the sun. In Jesus, God comes to us united forever in human nature so that we might know him and draw near to him. At last, coming close to the great I am to cry out, Abba, Father. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, 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 our Emmanuel. In Jesus God comes to us that we might know him. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. In Jesus, the unknowable I am comes to us so that we might know him. That is the gospel, my friend. That is the gospel of Jesus. A man in whom we can rest our trust, knowing that he understands. One who was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. One who is not unable to sympathise with us in our weaknesses and one upon whom everyone can rest for hope and for peace in a world that's filled with empty, nameless fear. He is a Jesus worth trusting. Do you know him? No one is beyond redemption. Have you come to Jesus in repentance? The great paradox of the Christian life is that the presence of Jesus, the Lord, ought to make us tremble. He is the high and exalted one. He's infinite in his holiness and majesty and purity and might. We are weak and finite. We are sinners. We ought to tremble. That's the message of verses 16 to 19. We should tremble. We are sinners. The presence of Jesus should rightly make us tremble but if we know that Jesus is with us in love and grace, nothing else ought to make us tremble. Nothing. Not even death. The presence of Jesus should make us tremble, but if he is with us, nothing else can. Clement of Alexandria beautifully put it this way, Christ turns all our sunsets into dawns. Christ turns all of our sunsets into dawns. When Jesus is with us, we, when we rest on him, we can say with the hymn writer Catherine von Schlegel, 
Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the winds and waves still know the voice of Christ that ruled them here below. Jesus, who walks on the water, who walked across the waves, should make us tremble, but only a Jesus like that can, is one that we can trust. Perhaps we live under the tyranny of those empty fear boxes in our lives because our view of Jesus is so far too small. He is the great I am made flesh. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. The disciples that night understood that Jesus loved them and cared for them. They had strayed out of sight of him. They had left him behind. And as he comes to them, however far they had wandered, they hadn't wandered out of his sight. You can never, beloved in Christ, stray beyond the sight or the grip of the grace of the Lord Jesus. The Lord never lets anyone go that he calls to himself. He brings them safe to shore. And the disciples understood two things about the Lord Jesus that night. They understood that he is the Lord, sovereign over the elements. He is on his throne. He is in his holy temple. And they understood that this sovereign Lord loved them and it dispelled their fear and replaced it with gladness. We have a greater demonstration of those truths. The Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers, the armed mob, came to Jesus looking and asking, Who is Jesus? And he stepped forward and said again, Ego in my, I am. And the soldiers to a man fell flat on their face to the ground. It flattened them with the majesty of his presence. I am. He is the sovereign Lord and because he loves us, he was bound and tried and crucified. He is the sovereign Lord who loves us, but he gave himself for us. He rules over all things and he bleeds to make us his. What fear have you that trust in him cannot dispel? You need to repent, my friend, of a too small a view of Jesus and far too big a view of your circumstances. Have you lost sight of his sovereignty so that you really, rarely tremble before him? Have you lost sight of his love and kindness that you find it hard to trust him? The Lord Jesus this morning is calling you to look to the one who rides on the storm, who comes to you and says, I am. Do not fear. Trust me. May the Lord bless, the, bless his word for his glory, for our eternal good. Jesus would come to you and say, I am. Do not fear. Amen. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving.